Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our evening service in Windsor. This is the fifth in the series on what we believe. David has been taking us through four studies. The first one was on the basis of the the scripture for what we believe. And then we looked at the Godhead, Father, Son, and last Sunday evening on the Holy Spirit. Now, this evening we come to the relationship between God and us as human beings. And that, in broad terms, is called the atonement. And the verse on the screen is one of the key ones from Romans 3 and 25. God presented Jesus, his son, as a sacrifice of atonement. There's the word in scripture. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. I did tackle this topic what, some five years ago, but if you were here, I'm sure if you're anything like me, well, I needed a thorough revision, and I've made a thorough revision of the topic. Let's begin with a hymn of praise. And if you look at the third line, you'll see terms like the ones I'm going to use this evening, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, who like thee his praise should sing. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. We'll stand to sing together. Almighty God and loving Heavenly Father, we bow before you in humility and worship. You are the Lord, the merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and unfailing in your faithfulness and love. You were faithful in your promise of sending a Redeemer. And in your mercy and grace, you gave your one and only Son to die for our sins. This evening, as we come with praise and thanksgiving, we come to thank you for the lessons already learned today. Thank you for the challenge of your word to us this morning. Thank you that when you say it, you do it. When you make your promises, you carry them out. Lord, may that bear fruit in our lives during the coming week. And now, our humble prayer is that this evening you will accept our worship and speak to us once again. May what we say and sing and do be acceptable to you. Help us to come before you with joy, remembering that you presented your Son as an atoning sacrifice and recognizing that the risen Savior is among us so that by his life we have forgiveness and hope. O gracious God, help us to see him more clearly. Heighten our sense of joy and gladness and teach us from your truth. Grant that our gathering together this evening may result in blessing for each one of us 
as we hear your voice and obey the promptings of your Spirit. And above all, may your great name be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now the announcements, Clay's meeting as we meet here, on Tuesday at half past six, Christianity Explored uh, continues in the church hall. And on Wednesday, we invite you to join us for the, the, the prayer meeting when Dorothea will be leading that. And then on Thursday at 10.15 in the morning, the parent and toddler group. Friday's always busy. Quarter past seven, the iSports Bible study at the Morton Community Center. At half past seven, the missionary prayer group. A week early, but it's across the road in 127 Malone Avenue. And at the same time, half past seven, the Youth Fellowship is going to the Ozone Laser. Any tickets left? All gone. I needn't... Uh... Yes, today it says do something. Too late. Next Sunday, half past ten, the uh, morning service and junior church is Mission Sunday. And Eddie Arthur from the Wycliffe Bible Translators is to be with us as a speaker. I'm told, I haven't heard him, but I'm told he's a, an excellent expositor of God's Word. So, an invitation there to come back. And next Sunday evening with the Lord's Table, Mike Ewan from SIM, and some of them remember Mike from his Baptist Youth Days and his uh, work in Whitehead as well. So, next Sunday is a big day, Missions Sunday. Other events, I'll not go down through them. You heard them this morning if you were here. And if you're interested, there's information at the back or from somebody who would know something about these. But the big announcement, I think, one we've been waiting for for years now at the bottom there, planning permission has been granted. Is it a green paper? So I don't know. It has come through at last for the proposed new church building. So we're set to go. Let's pray about that in, the, uh, in these days. Well, please send announcements. You know that already. Those are the announcements. The offering is not now. It's later on in the service. Let's read the scriptures together. From Romans 3. In the early chapters of Romans, Paul has been talking about the relationship between human beings and God, Jews and Gentiles together. And in verse 9 of Romans 3, he begins this section by saying, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Now, he's talking about Jews. He was a Jew. And he's saying, Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. 
Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So reads God's word. There is Paul's summary of us as human beings. Paul's summary, Scripture summary, for God's summary. By the way, before you close your Bibles, look at the way the text is set out. If you're using the NIV, then you will see that it's kind of poetry. In fact, it's nearly all from the Psalms. Paul has gathered together quotations from the Psalms that are making the point. Six Psalms he uses there. And he also uses a passage from Isaiah and Ecclesiastes. All saying the same thing. If you go back to verses 10 to 12, I have it on the screen. I suppose the best known part of that. There's no one righteous, not even one. Not even you. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Those to me are some of the most disturbing verses in all Scripture. By the way, is that your view of the human race? Is that your view of yourself? I was interested recently in the case where you may remember two boys aged, what were they, 11 and 12, attacked two other boys slightly younger and left them with severe injuries. And the press called those two attackers monsters. And some people immediately objected. Those boys weren't monsters. They weren't born like that. They were born good. But it was the environment in which they were brought up that made them like that. They're victims too. That's not what the Bible says. Do you remember what King David said in Psalm 51, that great confession? He said, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, the potential for evil is there right from the beginning. And that isn't only King David speaking, that's God speaking us through the Psalms. Now, I want to point out some of the terms that the Apostle Paul uses in his letters to describe our human state. And then see what God has done for us. Here's the first one. This is the human condition, according to, to Paul in Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, number one, the human race is wicked. Number two, Romans 3 and 23. A lot of us who went to Sunday school learned that verse very soon in Sunday school. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The human race is sinful. And because we are, and I include all of us because we're in the human race, because all of us are wicked and sinful, there are inevitable consequences listen to this 
You used to be slaves to sin. The human race is captive to sin. And Paul says, and I'm quoting from the authorized because I learned it there first of all. The law was there that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Another consequence, we're guilty because of our sin. And the third one, different letter this time, but to the Colossians, Paul says in chapter 121, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. You see, human race, wicked, sinful, the consequences are that they are captive, they're guilty, they're alienated. We are captive. We are guilty. We are alienated. Now, the scene is set. There we have it. Wicked, sinful, captive, guilty, alienated. And those last three follow from the state in which we are being wicked and sinful. So, the big question is, how can human beings be brought into a right relationship with God to be at one with him the old English word at one meant describes the, the process which occurs to enable a human being to be at one with almighty God and that theological term we now call the atonement there we have set the scene. Let's sing together and stand to sing Beneath the cross of Jesus I find a place to stand. Let me take up that previous slide. We're going to look at scripture evidence for each of these states. Five of them there. And maybe two sub-points. Now David gave you 13 last Sunday evening so you can't complain when I give you five. Just, just five to think about. Each of these states in which we find ourselves and see how God has dealt with us to make us at one with himself, to bring about the atonement. And you'll see we're doing things slightly different this evening. I'll talk, we'll sing, sing about what I've talked about, and then we'll talk some more and sing some more like that. Well, let's start with that first overall picture and the verse I gave you. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The question is, how can a wicked person be brought into God's favor? How can a wicked person, or what can a wicked person do to turn away God's wrath because of that wickedness? The picture is in a temple precinct where a queue of wicked people are standing there waiting to perform a religious ritual. You see the first person has a libation to pour out of a jug and the second person has a, a sheep or a goat to offer. So it is a religious ritual usually offering a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of the God. I say the God because, of course, 
religious rituals like that were the order of the day, right through the Old Testament and in Paul's day when he was writing this, so people would understand it. And indeed, they still happen in countries today where people worship spirits, where animism holds sway. Here we see a picture of a Jewish priest making an offering for the guilty party. Probably during the um, 40 years wanderings because the, the carrying pole of the altar is still inserted there, you can see. Now, some people have a difficulty with the whole concept of the wrath of God. Remember the scripture that I quoted a moment ago. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godliness and wickedness. God doesn't lose his temper like human beings are wont to do. He is implacably opposed to evil in all its forms. And John Stott, some of us know John Stott as a great commentator on biblical things. Here's John Stott's summary. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to every form of evil. Now, who can take the initiative to turn away God's wrath? In pagan worship, it's the worshipper who performs that ritual, or a priest who offers a sacrifice on behalf of the sinner to placate the offended deity. But Scripture makes it very clear that we can do nothing to turn away the wrath of God Almighty or Holy. Do you know Isaiah 64, verse 6? God considers that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags, unpresentable, unworthy. So the initiative had to come from God Himself. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. Let me quote another scripture verse Romans 3 24. God presented him, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement. Now that's fairly obscure language. And the NIV, if you look at the bottom of the page, we call it the margin, puts it like this. God presented him, that's Jesus, as the one who would turn aside his wrath. Got it? Taking away sin. A sacrifice of atonement. But let's unparcel that. Let's unwrap it. As the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. Now, all of that translates one word in the original Greek. And when the translators in, back in King James's time were translating this, they didn't worry too much about the man or woman in the pew. And they used the one word and translated it straight from the Greek. Propitiation. What a word. But you've had it unpacked already in the NIV. Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. God's love found a way to turn aside his wrath. So, a definition of propitiation? A way of turning aside God's wrath. The atoning sacrifice was God himself. In the person of his son. And let me make this point. 
God's love brought about the atonement. God's love is not the result of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us. No, Christ died for us because God loves us. And that's important. We were wicked. God's wrath was appeased. God's wrath was turned away by the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And that turning away by sacrifice is called propitiation. That's the method that God used. Remember, propitiation, the way of turning aside God's wrath and bringing us into favor with God. There's the first picture. Wicked. The second overall one, sinful. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God was the verse I gave you at the beginning. And the question is, how can our sins be taken away? Let me go back to the picture of the Jewish priest standing by the altar with the sin offering on it. But this time I want to introduce another term. And you'll know it well. It's not like propitiation. This is very well known and very well understood. Substitution. One player taking the place of another. If you want to remember the uh, France-Ireland match yesterday, well, we wouldn't want to. But how many players were substituted in the end? I think it's about 14. Because they, they now give a list of those who were substituted. If you watched uh, on television, you, you, you saw the sort of thing. Substitution is very well known, even to the smallest boy who follows football. But there are other, to me, more serious kinds of substitution. The Cistercian monk who took the place of a family for execution in Auschwitz. In the last World War, the prisoner in Burma who asked to be shot instead of his friend. I suppose the best known Bible picture of substitution is that of Abraham about to sacrifice Isaac at God's command. Remember the story? Genesis 22. Abraham and Isaac went trudging up the mountain. Abraham was carrying the fire and the knife and Isaac had the wood to be burned on his shoulders. And uh, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, I'm quoting from Genesis 22, Father, the fire and wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And when the moment came, and Abraham raised his knife to kill his son, the angel of the Lord called out to him, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand upon the boy and said, Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. And the Bible account goes on like this. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of, instead of his son. That was substitution. Now, all the other truths that come out of Genesis 25, I'm leaving to David on a Sunday morning in the future sometime. What does the Bible say 
about Jesus, God's Son. We often quote Isaiah 53, don't, don't we? Well, here's substitution. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brings peace was upon him, and with his wounds we are healed. That is substitution. Old Testament, let me give you a New Testament verse. Peter in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 18 says, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That is substitution. We were sinful. And our sins can be forgiven only by someone dying in our place. That's substitution. And the only one worthy to do that was our Lord Jesus Christ. Some people have difficulty with this idea of substitution. About six years ago, some of you will remember very well, Steve Chalk, Baptist minister in England and broadcaster, caused a great furore when he claimed in a book that he co-authored, a book called The Lost Message of Jesus, that Jesus did something in our place, but it was not penal substitution. Because, said Chalk, and here's what caused the furore, if God brought about the death of his son with the overtone that it was something inflicted by the father on the son, then, he says, such a God is a cosmic child abuser. Now that, to me, is blasphemy. And a complete misreading of Scripture. Remember that Jesus said, speaking of his own life in John 10, no one takes it from me. I have power, I have authority to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. Jesus said that about himself. And John Stott, as usual, sums it up beautifully. We must never make Christ the object of God's punishment, or God the object of Christ's persuasion. For both God and Christ were subjects, not objects, taking the initiative to save sinners. You see, the Godhead, Father and Son, were not two separate agents, each with his own agenda. They acted together. As the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. God was in Christ. And he provided the substitution for us who should have died because of our sins. Christ was a substitute. Now, because we are wicked and sinful, there are inevitable consequences. You used to be slaves to sin. Show that verse before. But in verse 19 of Romans 6, Paul goes on to say, you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity, to ever-increasing wickedness. So, captive is the third heading. And the question is, how can a captive person be made free? Well, the picture is a, a marketplace, the agora, in Roman times. And a business transaction is taking place. That would be common when Paul was living, and one which would be immediately understood by people reading in uh, Romans. Slaves were being bought and sold. And a slave could be freed by the paying of a price. All the details are set out in Leviticus. 
if it were Roman, if it were Jews uh, having slaves. The Bible says, "To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood." See, the captive is freed. Sinners held captive like a slave and is freed by Jesus' death on the cross. But the, the Bible gives two more terms, and these are my sub-points I want to deal with very quickly. Two more terms to describe our being set free from captivity. Did you know there are still some pawnbrokers in Belfast? In fact, I saw a big ad, a big quarter-page ad in the South Belfast Times this past week. And seemingly the credit crunch has brought them to the fore once again. Maybe you don't know what a pawn shop's all about. They have got three brass balls. Well, you, you see, I haven't seen this on the screen before. Uh, you see the three brass balls on the side of the building, never name the ones hanging outside. Something to do with Venetian traders, but that's not our business tonight. You always know a pawn shop by the three brass balls outside. If my money's scarce before payday comes on a Friday, I can take something, something precious, my gold watch, I wish, and get some money for it. When Friday comes, I can go back into the shop again and say, there's the pawn slip, give me my money, give me my watch, and I'll give you my money. Now, the money I give the second time is more than the first time because the pawnbroker's got to make his money that way. The technical term for getting back that article from the pawn shop is redeeming the article. Actually, redeeming the article. The Bible says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, brought, bought back, freed, but with the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect. You see, we're sinners held captive like a pond article and are redeemed by the death of Jesus on the cross. But there's another well-known term. You recognize these two? On the 23rd of October last year, the headline in the paper was British couple cap kidnapped by Somali pirates. The boat in which they were sailing towards the African coast was hijacked and a ransom demand made. They're still being held as hostages. So that in the news just this past week, looking a lot more gaunt than they were when that picture was taken. Well, that was before they were kidnapped, of course. A ransom demanded for the release of a hostage. Jesus said about himself, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We are held captive by sin and can be freed only on the payment of a ransom. We can be ransomed by the payment of a price, and that price is nothing less than the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we were held captive by sin and we've been freed. We were captive like a pond article and been redeemed. We were held as hostages to sin. 
we've been ransomed through the death of Christ. That is the atonement. Let's sing again. Stand to sing. This time we're going to, well, we'll not stand, we'll sit this time. Because I wonder if you know the next, uh, the result of Adam's sin, Adam's trespass, was condemnation for all men, says Romans 5. The AV talks about being guilty before God. And the question is, how can a guilty person be acquitted? So it's a picture in a law court. And the law is taking its course. And the judge, well there are three judges, three magistrates sitting there on that bench I think. But the judge is declaring a person innocent or guilty. But the Bible says very clearly that we are condemned. We are guilty. And Luke in Acts 13 says, Through Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. So, guilty and condemned were justified. But that happens to be the topic for the next time that we come back in three weeks' time to what we believe, justification by faith. So I'm going to say no more about that at the minute. So the, the final picture. Alienated. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. And the question is, how can a person who's estranged like that be brought back into a living relationship with God? I suppose... The most important example of alienation anywhere at any time is this one. Do you recognize it? Adam and Eve in a very well-made coat of skins being ejected from the Garden of Eden. That had cosmic consequences. Isaiah 59 and 2 says your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not fear. Here. What we need is to be reconciled to God. I suppose the best known picture of being reconciled must be the father's welcome in Jesus' story of the prodigal son. I love that picture. For those of you listening by recording, let me explain. The picture shows the young man with his back to us, his turban on his head. We can't see his face, but we see the face of the father, and that's the important thing. He's grasping the son closely. And in his face, a picture of what? Compassion, love, relief. And there's a tear in the corner of his eye. And uh, Jesus said, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. There's reconciliation. Jesus' illustration of the restoration of a personal relationship with God with whom we have been estranged. And the father said to the older brother, 
who objected. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's us. Dead in sin. Lost to God. Now alive and found. A picture of our human condition. Where there had been enmity, we have been made at one with God. Let me quote these verses from Romans 5, verse 9. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Our Savior is alive tonight. I don't like to see crucifixes in churches. Our Savior is alive. He's not on the cross. How much more shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. And I go back to the authorized version in which I was brought up. It translates that last line, through whom we have received the atonement. Reconciliation. The atonement. There's only one chorus we can sing just now, coming towards the end. Reconciled. Alienated. The process was reconciliation. Let me sum up. The atonement. There were two overall terms. The human race is wicked. The process by which God brought about turning away his wrath is called propitiation. And that's the meaning of the word. Turning aside God's wrath and bringing us into favor with him. The second overall term is sinful. And God used the process of substitution. Jesus took our place and died instead of us. Now, those overall conditions have consequences. We are captive, captive of sin. God used the process of redemption. We were freed. We were ransomed. We were redeemed. Guilty. Justification. Justification simply means given a right standing with God. No longer condemned. But more of that in three weeks' time. We were alienated. God reconciled us to himself, brought us back into a living relationship with him through the death of his son. That's the atonement. Where do you stand this evening? Freed? Redeemed? Ransomed? Because you know that Christ died for you and you have accepted him as your saviour. That's it. Those of us who know him, rejoice. Rejoice day by day in the wonder of a living Savior who is coming again to take us to be with him.